0: Case squid listeners, it's every other Sunday again, and you're listening to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly K-Squid radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. Rivers have long been the objects of poems, songs, novels, studies, fishers, swimmers, sewage, engineers, farmers, and salmon. In California, rivers and the water in them are the focus of near-eternal political struggles. And there's that old saying attributed to Heraclitus, one never steps into the same river twice. Every river is different, yet there is some human drive to make every river the same, the ideal river. My guest today is Dr. Joanne Yao. She is Senior Lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary University of London. She's also author of The Ideal River, How Control of Nature Shaped the International Order. Her book is about the Rhine, Danube, and Congo rivers, how they were reshaped and managed, or not managed, and the role they played in the imaginaries and the emergence of the European imperialist order of the 19th century and in the shaping of nature around the world before and since. Yao's book has, I think, special relevance for California, where the struggle to make virtually all of our rivers ideal ones has been going on since the middle of the 1800s. Dr. Joanne Yao, welcome to Sustainability Now. Thank you very much. Um, So why don't we begin with a brief synopsis of your book, what it's about, and why you wrote it?
1: Okay, yes. So the book is titled The Ideal River. Uh, So the book is really about the creation of the ideal river, or a, a sense of what the perfect river ought to look like in the Western geographical imaginary. And I focused on the Uh, late 18th and 19th centuries Um, and this ideal river is a rational, straightened, and predictable highway uh, for for the global movement of goods, people, and ideas. Um, So the book examines efforts to create this ideal river along three transboundary rivers, the Rhine, the Danube, and the Congo rivers. And it's done through the creation of the first international organizations in the 19th century along the Rhine and the Danube and the failure to create a similar organization along the Congo. Uh, And I think it came at the topic in a roundabout way. So when I started my PhD project, um, I wanted to write a PhD on cooperation over oceans, global oceans, but mm. was quickly advised to kind of scale down the ambition of this PhD project. So he turned to rivers as a scaled down version of perhaps uh, ocean cooperation, but actually discovered how fascinating rivers really are both physically as natural objects, but also ideationally um, as spiritual places and places of the sublime where beauty intermingle with danger. Um, so I guess I wrote the book because I found Rivers to be really fascinating characters um, in international politics um, and fascinating characters in the history of the creation of the current international order. And I wanted to really highlight to IR scholars that um, international society's engagement with the natural environment isn't really a recent thing that came to the fore in the late 20th century, but really rests at the heart of a Western-led modernity.
0: Okay. Um well, what, how did you, so, you know, you did your PhD at the London School of Economics, and I don't know what your background is, but how did you end up there?
1: Okay, so I grew up um, in the United States, uh, and I became interested in international politics at the University of Chicago, where I did my undergraduate. Yeah. Um, and then uh i did my master's at johns hopkins size uh with the view of working in government or international government of some sort um i spent some time working in the u.s government uh i didn't really like it there it was a bit too bureaucratic for me
0: where, um, where and were I asked you? a lot
1: of questions
0: but hmm? where, where were you working just out of i was
1: uh, working for the department of defense
0: ah okay
1: um and it was a bit too bureaucratic and I challenged authority a lot. So um, it wasn't the the correct partnership, let's just say. Um, So I thought, well, what else can I do? So I applied for Ph.D. programs. And while I was waiting for um, answers from Ph.D. programs, I went off to the Republic of Georgia to work for an international NGO, Care International, um, there for a while. Uh, And I got an offer from the London School of Economics, uh, so I decided to go. I think otherwise I would have perhaps stayed in the um, NGO sector. Mm -hmm. And then I got my PhD, as you said, at the London School of Economics in International Relations. um, And I cast around for academic jobs, as one does when one finishes one's PhD. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll give myself a couple of years to see if I can find something. And then if not, well, I'm, I'm sure I can find something else to do. Um, and I got a teaching position at Durham University where I was for two years. And then when the opportunity came back, um, came to move back to London, I took that opportunity to move to Queen Mary.
0: Mm-hmm. OK, well, the, the three rivers that you write about, uh, you know, have a, what I would think of as a, a distinct geopolitics. Um And one thing we ought to remember is, of course, is that my listeners are not i r international relations scholars, so we have to be sort of you know cautious about terminology, as I am often reminded anyway, distinct mm-hmm. geopolitics right I mean, they run through different parts of europe uh and of course the congo and uh some of it has to do with obviously geography and geology, and some of it with borders and ideologies i mean, can you summarize? this history of geopolitic politics and and um, let's just say struggle over these rivers.
1: Yes, um, so I think that's really a central point of the book um, is that in creating or in envisioning the ideal river along each of these actual physical rivers, there's a different inflection for what the ideal river looks like um, in the imaginary. Um, and you're right, it has to do with the physical characteristics of the river. So um, I describe how each of the rivers have different uh, physical characteristics, which enable or pre- present barriers to different types of politics. Um, but I And you're right, it's also important. Uh, what's also important for the story is the river's place. Each river's place in global geopolitics, perhaps we can call it. Um, so, for example, the Rhine... Um, I see the Rhine as sort of an internal highway for European countries, and the Rhine, uh, the the taming of the Rhine was seen as good for the flourishing of European commerce, European political cooperation, and European civilization and progress um, to help Europe overcome sort of the Teutonic insanity of its medieval past and to achieve a rational, efficient modernity. and that has to do, of course, with the geopolitics of the Rhine and where it's situated uh, in Europe, flowing through a series of European countries. Um, and the difference between the Rhine and the Congo, I think, is, uh, and the Danube is interesting in that the Danube, because it flows from the heart of Europe to the near periphery or the Near East, And the river is seen as a connecting river that connects the heart of European civilization to something foreign. So it's seen as a a liminal space where Europe meets the other. And then controlling the river, taming the river, uh, signifies the control of this conduit to make sure that civilization and progress flows one direction from Europe outwards rather than chaos flowing the other direction. and Cong- the Congo exists outside of Europe, as you mentioned, um, in what was envisioned as a heart of darkness or a blankness on the map. So it was very uh, seen very much as an imperial river. Um, and the taming of the Congo was about imposing a commercial rationality and imposing all the good things about European civilization on this conceptually empty space where no... Um, legitimate institutions existed before or was seen as no legitimate institutions
0: and but but and and what was the what were the consequences of that I mean this is in the context right of the uh the uh struggle over you know partitioning Africa right um uh, what,
1: well, so, what oh sorry uh, so the context of of course um for the Congo uh, the consequences of imposing a European model developed uh, along the Rhine and the Congo onto the, what they thought was a conceptually empty space was rejection of this international organization that never took off. Right? So it, um, the Congo River Commission was uh, supposed to be um, constituted through the 1885 uh, Berlin Conference where the partition, well, might might say the scramble for Africa really right. took off. Um, And there was supposed, but if if you look at the conference, the purposes of the conference wasn't to divide Africa. Uh, The purposes of the conference was actually to institute some sort of order so there wouldn't be war amongst the parties fighting for Africa. And so the Congo Commission was part of that deal where there was supposed to be a commission, an ordered rational way of taming this river um, where uh, everything didn't descend into war. Right in terms of the the who has what, who owns what piece of Africa, um, and yes. it,
0: it sounds. I mean, when you talk talk about it that way, you know, talk about imposing order on nature, it sounds. And pardon. To any of my listeners whom I might insult, it sounds very Teutonic and German, right? I mean, in the sense of, or even Prussian. Now I know yeah. Prussia. Prussia doesn't enter the, uh, the the scene until later in the nineteenth century, but but it is is this? I mean, who was the most influential party or country, especially in Europe? Since you know the Germans didn't get much of Africa, as I recall, they got mm-hmm. Southwest Africa and I think Rwanda, right? Not Rwanda, um, Burundi. I think it was, or anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, So I guess I don't, in in my research, I don't really distinguish between the different European countries
0: and sort of the
1: different inflections um, that each perhaps European culture might have had and meanings uh, behind the river. I was very much looking for more similarities. Mm -hmm. um, And so the sources... I rely on are perhaps uh primarily British uh, because of the language I speak and where I'm situated yeah um but the British were a big part of of discussing the imposition of um a commission a river commission of some sort on mm. the Congo um the French were very much part of the conversation as well, and the French also have a history of controlling water in in ways for example, if you, we think about um Versailles and the grand fountains of Versailles. It's all about controlling water and demonstrating how the control of water also bleeds into other uh, aspects of state control.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to, I mean, I want to come back to some of that later about, about water. Um, one of the things uh, that you talk about in the book is about, about sovereignty over rivers, right? Is that mm-hmm. the, the laws of, of sovereignty, which is very much like the law of capture um, in Domestic politics. I mean, it's, you know, if, if you have the, the banks, you own it and you control it. Right. And on the other hand, as you mentioned, commerce was a very important factor. So you are talking there about, about sovereignty as an obstacle to, you know, in a sense, turning the river into a single, oh, I don't know, a single uh, entity, a single <laughs> stream or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And how did that work? i mean there were tolls you know those these kinds of th- tolls and chains and and that sort of image how how was that dealt with
1: it's, um for and i think that aspect of the book focuses specifically on uh, the Rhine
0: uh-huh. and
1: sort of the history of Teutonic tolls um levied along important parts of the river uh, so um, historically um you know the German states were broken down into small principalities along the river and this gave a chance for every prince to kind of levy tolls across the river. Um similar dynamics along the Danube. Uh, but for the most part I talk about how this um levying of tolls along the Rhine made it really an inefficient economic highway so inefficient, there were songs written about this, how many tolls were being levied along the Rhine, and so inefficient that people were transporting their goods over land, which is not as um, efficient, but um, given the number of tolls and the number of sort of stops you had to make along the way, um, it was more efficient to just cart things over land. Uh, so these tolls along the river, sure, was an exercise of the prince's right to levy these tolls, it also kind of speaks to a meaning of the river as belonging to um, certain princes as part of their 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 land that they could do with as they wish and the meaning of that shifts um, throughout my story so if the meaning of that at the very beginning is private ownership by the princes as part of their their land to do with what they wish then the meaning of these transboundary rivers start shifting to well shouldn't everybody have the right to use this transboundary river the river doesn't belong to you because it flows through your land but it starts somewhere else and it goes somewhere else right and so by uh, the breaking down of these tolls the, the sitting down and saying well well, we don't. We, we, these tolls are not efficient, and having an outside power impose that. So there is a story here of hegemony and having an outside power, whether that's Napoleon or whether that's the settlement of 1815 coming in and saying we're going to get rid of these tolls because these tolls are not good for European commerce and they're not good for us morally if we want to be cooperative, civilized, progressive people.
0: An economist, I mean, an economist would simply say that this was. Um... You know, the recognition that separate tolls, as you say, were inefficient. Right. And I mean, the princes would come to realize that they would make more money if they didn't impose the tolls. Right. Because it cut back yeah. our business. Um,
1: <laughs> but, you know,
0: on the other hand, the way you, you talk about it or you write about it, you know, sounds much more like power politics in a sense where, uh, yes, commerce is important. But by the same token. Uh, domination of some sort, even if it's not, you know, territorial domination is, is important. I mean, is that, does that seem accurate to you or am I just projecting?
1: Yeah, I think I, in the book, I emphasize kind of the intertwining of two logics, uh, both the economic logic and what I call moral logic. So perhaps maybe not power politics, Uh but there's a moral good in taming the river that's just as important and intertwined in the economic good because generating more economic wealth is a good not just in itself but because it was seen as morally progressive so i think what's important here ideas of progress really driving the story for me
0: okay well i was gonna i was just gonna interject that right i mean the the moral case sounds very much like a utilitarian case too which means, you know, we're sort of back at economics in, in that case, in that mm-hmm. instance, right? Um, but uh, now I've forgotten what you were just what you were just talking about. That's what happens uh, when you get older. Um, one of the things that I wrote to you about uh, was this link between um, nationalism and economic development with rivers at their center, you know, and you do, you don't really talk about that precisely, but the, the sort of the will to develop, you know, to progress, was oh, progress, right. The development, development is progress, right. And, and progress serves the nation. Um, And again, you know, there's this kind of, uh, I don't know, contradiction, right. That, that, to to develop the river, you have to have some degree of control. I mean, we see this nowadays, right, with the Nile mm-hmm. and the dams on the Nile, right? That that uh, I think it's Sudan, uh, Ethiopia. Ethiopia controls now the water, the headwaters of the of the Nile, the
1: Grand Renaissance Dam that they've built. Right, take, right, and Ethiopia. and
0: and Egypt suffers as a result, or at least it claims it suffers. Right, and and of course, in both cases, it's it's about the nation, right? National development. I mean, as much as it is about economic efficiency or, or anything else. And um, anyway, it's a, it's a theme that, that has sort of long fascinated me, as I mentioned. Um, one, one of the sections of your book is, is called Mega Dams and Concrete Temples. And I wonder if you would talk about temples, um, mega dams and temples, because I mean, it's a very intriguing combination. Yeah,
1: I, I guess I, I haven't thought long and hard about this, but big dams are like temples because I think they're built to inspire awe. And they're built to inspire awe for an idea, the same way temples are through monumental architecture. Um, It's the same way as, you know, you build a monumental temple, it draws the eye upwards to something higher, signifying a higher ideal, um, and it presents a stage for different sorts of performances to take place. Mm -hmm. Um, They're costly, right? Just like, you know, if you build a grand temple, they're costly in the same way, but also framed as necessary to advance the values and aims of whatever society is building them, whether that be sort of the glory of God or um, the glory of modernity in the case of these monumental temples. Uh, sorry, monumental dams. So for dams, um, the ideal that's being reached for, as your eye is drawn upwards, is the desirability of development uh, along a certain modern conception of what development ought to be, uh, and a certain narrative of how to get there.
0: Mm-hmm. I, have a, I have a question for you to think about, and that is, of course, big dams are falling out of favor. Right. And um, does that say anything about the uh, obsolescence of temples? (laughs) If you don't want to answer Mm -hmm. the question, just say, I don't know. Uh, But.
1: Well, I think that's, that's interesting. Um, Something interesting to chew on. Uh, So maybe we're entering uh, at era post-modernity. So if these temples are built for modernity, uh, to worship on the altar of modernity, then perhaps we're entering um, a phase where that ideal no longer holds. Um, but there are places in the world, as you mentioned, uh, the Ethiopian Grand Renaissance Dam, right, um, right. where it is still being lauded as this um, amazing things. that's gonna help this country develop in the future.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and as they say, we will see, right? It's too soon to tell. Yeah. You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, the host of the show. And my guest today is Dr. Joanne Yao, who has written a book called The Ideal River. Uh, and we've been talking about rivers in Europe, in particular, the three rivers she focused on in her in her book, the Rhine, the Danube, and the Congo. But it seems to me that some of the things that you talk about apply to rivers everywhere. I mean, there is this whole sort of mixed uh mixed vision of of what rivers are and of course water which is so integral to having a river um and you actually wrote uh in your uh um acknowledgements the following can the history of the river be disentangled from the societies that have dreamed along its banks bathed in its waters and engineers engineered its shorelines i found out an extremely sort of uh evocative sentence um which which combines the kind of the romantic and and imaginary with the concrete and mechanical and you know how how can you expand on how you think about these connections
1: yeah so i think that aspect is very central to the way i think about the relationship between reverse and society that it's entangled and it's co-constituted right so in that way in which um we don't have Imaginaries about what the ideal river is without some engagement with actual rivers, right? So my um, geographical imaginaries don't come out of somebody sitting in in their homes in a room just dreaming of rivers. That there is always some sort of engagement in the concrete in the actual rivers that whatever person is imagining is used to, right? Whether that's the river outside or the river they traveled to. Etc. And and they think vice versa that the river, what we might envision as a natural river, um, has always been um, sort of worked on by human society in some way. So there's a lot of conversations perhaps about restoration of rivers, um, but then the big question is restoration to what? What envisioned ideal natural river are we restoring things to? Um, And there is evidence that, you know, if you take something like a river like the Rhine. There's evidence that humans have been um, trying to engineer shorelines for millions—not millions, thousands of years at least. Right, that there is some effort to do this. So I guess what my book is about in the um, late 18th and 19th centuries is sort of the monumental scale of those projects, how those right. projects yeah. are scaled up in a way that sort of encompasses the international.
0: Yeah, and but but as those things are, what does nature mean then in that context? I mean, uh, you know, I, we we have the 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 mm. mechanical utilitarian vision, right? The engineers and the hydrologists of the nineteenth century looking at these rivers and saying, "Boy, what a mess! You know, we've got to get them cleaned up." And then you have the re, the the romantics, you know, who write music and who paint paintings and who, uh, you know, write poems poems about them. Right, and they're both thinking about nature, right? About what, how, and of course, this is not irrelevant to the present day and the present moment. Um, how does that, you know, again, can you can you yeah. sort of play that one out? Because you do talk about nature yeah, in there and I, the transformation of nature. Um,
1: yeah, I think very much sort of that romantic vision and the utilitarian vision. Sure, they're about sort of engagement with. The material outside of themselves, what they see in the world, but they're also about themselves, so that romantic vision of the river is much less about the actual river, but sort of an evocation of a certain feeling um, within human beings who see the sublime, right So the beauty and the dangers of the river combined, and it evokes something which brings up um, sort of the, the the essence of the human soul. So it is sort of an engagement with the river, but it's also mixed up with an internal gaze, if you will. And I think the utilitarian version, um, I would argue, has similar dynamics, where you are engaged with engineering the river, you are engaged with pushing the river um, this way or that way, but it is also an internal reflection of your desires for a rational, straightened river, and that an argument that this is what's good for society. This is what's good for progress. And I think that is an internal inflection as well as sort of an engagement with the physical.
0: Well, I mean, it's also, it's also a reflection of the uh, the um, enlightenment desire to c- command nature, right? Um, yep. What is it? The the uh, I can't even remember who it was who said it, right? Uh, uh, anyway, it doesn't, there's a line about nature to be uh, controlled must be obeyed or something something to that effect. And I think it was, it was one of the Bacons who said it or some, you know, anyway. Um, but again, it's, it's part of that sort of drive to understand the world, right. And to be able not only to explain it, but also to, to manage it. Um, which again is something that, that has changed at least in some societies, right. It's no longer, I mean, the notion of wild rivers, um, that mm-hmm. we have here, we have, uh, um, uh a, a nascent movement to uh to drain Hetch Hetchy, which provides water, which is a reservoir which provides water to san francisco um which John Muir thought one of the most beautiful canyons in the in the sierra nevada um of course this the city of San Francisco is aghast at that idea uh because where would we get water mm-hmm. right and and um i also i mean I have some questions here about water scarcity, I know it's kind of outside of your outside of your remit. Um, but uh, we've sort of moved away, at least Western society has moved away from this, you know, command of nature idea, at least in some, some respects. Mm. Uh, yeah. I said, I know <laughs> you're looking doubtful.
1: <laughs> I am looking doubtful. Um, I think in some ways, and I think I mentioned in my conclusion and in some ways we have learned from from some of these mistakes of the past. And in my book, I very much mention um, sort of the negative consequences, if you will, of some of these monumental engineering projects that, you know, we thought that straightening the river would fix the flooding, and maybe it didn't. Maybe it just, you know, ushered the flooding downriver rather than, you know, locating it upriver and made it worse, in fact, um, in in a lot of instances. Uh, And so... In in that way, maybe we've learned from our mistakes, maybe we're tending towards smaller dams rather than these big monumental dams um, that may be a rejection of this mastery idea. There is talk of wilding or rewilding, keeping things wild or rewilding um, wilderness and, and nature. Um, but on the other hand, I do think there is still, you know, a, a lot going on in terms of the conquest of nature. It, this idea of mastery going into space colonizing the moon, colonizing Mars. If we think about geoengineering, uh, this idea that we can stave off climate change by creating a shield around the earth, all of these ideas are still very alive and still seen as perhaps desirable policy options um, going forward. So on the one hand, I do think there is, you know, I may be too early to tell, there is kind of movement away from mastery or at least questioning um, the enlightenment confidence and mastery. But on the other hand, I do think these projects of mastery are still out there that we are still quite confident that as long as we try hard enough and build good enough uh, engineering models or good enough technology that we can control nature.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. Of course, absolutely. Right. I mean, we still have this struggle between technology on the one hand, right, as the solution to all of our problems and, um, changes in human behavior and social behavior as, as the other. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sort of curious and maybe you've run, you ran into this and, you know, doing your research and in the archives um, was there opposition to what was being done to the rivers, to the Rhine and the Danube? I mean, not just, you know, not just the poets and artists, but was there (laughs) wider spread? Because of course, anytime you try and, and tame a resource, you're also intruding on, Users, yeah. Did you find anything like that?
1: Yeah. So, um, absolutely not so much in the archival material because a lot of the archival material I accessed focused on the diplomats and they wouldn't have uh,
0: necessarily would have
1: talked, um, talked about, it. about it. But there was a, a lot of discussion about the local groups um, who resisted and advocated for other meanings of the river, perhaps who advocated for the the river perhaps as a habitat for fish or wildlife or as um, spiritual beings, and they were very much painted as these degenerative backwards people who stood in the way of progress. So, you know, even in the first case of the Rhine, a lot of the sort of local fishermen and farmers resisted these giant engineering projects to take out the bends along the Rhine and to straighten it and deepen it. But these were just painted as backwards yahoos who stood in the way of german progress right we Mm -hmm. we're looking Mm -hmm. forwards they're looking backwards right um and i think that even uh today that gets um people who stand in the way of these big engineering projects are painted um this way that they're looking backwards they're not you know modern in that sense
0: well, uh, on the other hand, some people, you know, look at them as as heroes, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That I mean, we're we're no longer well, you know. Again, I'm I'm projecting backwards by by saying, you know, that particular view is no longer necessarily the only one. Um,
1: yeah. No, and uh, I, I would agree with you that there is a difference. And I, I guess what I I try to to bring out in my book is the way that that one particular view. Um, And that one particular meaning of the river has been embedded in international institutions in a way that kind of gives it a a leg up, perhaps, in the way we think about the world. Mm. Um, So because of its dominance in the 19th century and the 19th century being the beginnings of international organizations as we know it today, these particular ways of viewing nature, these particular ways of um, aiming for mastery has been embedded in the way the frameworks of international politics in a way that then, um, even now, as we challenge that as different groups, diverse points of view start to challenge that, they're running up against sort of the implicit uh, embeddedness of those ideas
0: now I wonder if I wonder if one can connect that to the rise of capitalism. Um, you know that that um, the the idea you know the will to order, we might say, right, mm-hmm. and the, the efficiency arguments around commerce yeah. and and do, again, in the far, in the distant past, you know, at the in, in the year 1200 or even 1500, do you do you know do you find the similar kinds of arguments about the the uh uncontrollability of the river and the need to uh to manage it? I I, I don't know if you went back that far, I'd it'd be I'm sort of curious now about that.
1: Yes, yeah, so perhaps I don't really quite understand what you're getting at the uncontrollability oh. of the river and the desire to control it has has always been part of the discourse um it, it, and in my book within the times i'm talking about the the dangers both physically and metaphysically of an uncontrolled river is very much at the center of what these projects were trying to fix
0: no i mean i understand that yeah go on
1: yeah but, um, how does this link to capitalism? what is sorry well, what is I'm it? going in
0: two directions right on the yeah. on the one hand, right, it's about development, national development and the economic product and mm-hmm. um you know, if you talk about commerce and free trade, you' inevitably inevitably get to capitalism mm-hmm. uh, right and um but but, I'm now curious about historically before the enlightenment, before you know the the capacity i mean rivers were engineered right as you pointed out for thousands of mm-hmm. years um why they were engineered in that way you know what was was the goal productivity or or power right the power of the sovereign to basically control the water right? i mean you get back to uh um the uh the high hi- hydrological states argument mm-hmm. um God, I can't remember. You know, Whitfogel. I used to be able Witfogel, right. I used to be able to remember these kinds of things. Um, oh, man, it's all right. um but the the idea of of wild nature, you know, was it did it ex- do you know whether it existed, the idea that nature had to be tamed? Um I, I mean I know we have a whole sort of story, right? With Lynn White yeah. talking about talking about the origins of our depredations of nature in early christianity right or even in the bible Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. old testament right but
1: yeah um i guess i don't really go back that far to look beyond
0: yeah
1: so so my starting point is the the renaissance of the enlightenment a a certain way of um i guess in in the story i start with at the very beginning when we look at machiavelli and leonardo da vinci Uh trying to um um have their engineering projects. Uh there, there was a lot of pushback saying, well, you can't do this to a river. Only God has the right to control a river. Only God can part the seas. Only well, God can divert where, a river. So what are you? Doing?
0: Nowadays, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you, the hubris of you guys thinking you can even though you guys two the geniuses of the world, even you thinking you can divert a river, what hubris? right? Um, but the, Enlight- the Enlightenment thinking was a rejection of that. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, but mm-hmm. we can do it, and we're going to show you, right? So perhaps there was a lot more skepticism before the Enlightenment that it was man's place to do these engineering projects to change the entire flow of a river um, and that it was very arrogant. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I can sense that, but I haven't done much research
0: into that. No, I I understand, and I'm I'm being unfair partly in asking you that question. I was just going to think, you know, does Nietzsche have any views on rivers? Uh, <laughs> Idea <laughs> in, in relationship to what you just talked about, right? About the the death of God as the manager or the controller of of waterways, right? Um, anyway, there's another dissertation to be written. Yeah, uh, listen, the
1: death of God. <laughs> And, uh, and we we've rivers. got about
0: 4 minutes left and i wanted to go off topic um if that's okay with you mm-hmm. about about rivers and water in general and since you've got this um you know deep knowledge now of of 19th century european politics um there's a there's this this constant theme about countries fighting over rivers going to war over rivers i've always sort of regarded that as a um a, a Questionable proposition. Um, and it certainly is much more exciting than talking about water conservation or even commerce, right? Uh, when, when in doing your research, I mean, what, what do you, do you con- come to any conclusions about that particular proposition?
1: Yeah, I think within, I you guess, know, scholarship on shared water, transboundary water, and transboundary rivers, there is the sense water wars versus water peace, right? So does shared water lead to conflict because scarcity of water means it's such a valuable resource that you would fight over this? Or is water so elemental to the survival of human beings that shared water actually leads to recognition of common humanity and cooperation and peace? So, I mean, I think that debate um, is alive in, in the literature, um, certainly, places like, you know, you mentioned the Nile, Egyptian leaders are prone to to saber rattling about um, their readiness to fight over the waters of the Nile. But if you look at the long history of shared um, freshwater, um, especially through the database, there's a database. Um, I think it's Oregon State's Transboundary Freshwater Disputes database. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, people have done research into this database. Uh, I point out there's surprisingly few instances, actually, of shared water leading to armed conflict in the way we might imagine if we read the headlines. Um, so there are many examples um, historically, I think, of shared water really leading to cooperation, surprising cooperation, perhaps. For example, the Arrow Basin and the Tigers and the Euphrates and the Jordan. Uh, Places where state actors are not really known for getting along with each other, but Mm -hmm. has seen a history of cooperation over these rivers. Um, So, but I, I, I do think for me, at least in doing the research, it's important not to think about cooperation and conflict as sort of opposite states that exist separately, at least in international politics, but I guess in domestic politics as well. So, both dynamics might be at play at the same time. Two actors might cooperate and be in conflict at the same time. We really shouldn't see them as either or um both might be there. But I think also the important thing, at least for the argument in my book is that we should question cooperation as an ultimate good because we you know when we have this dichotomy of water wars versus water cooperation, and water peace, obviously one is better than the other morally. But if you look at an example like the arrow sea, um, there is impressive international cooperation among the states over sharing of fresh water. But it is the success of that cooperation that has led to environmental degradation and kind of the using up of all the water. They're so good at sharing that they've used up all the water and the Aral Sea has really shrunk. So cooperation um, is often kind of lauded as, as the end goal of international politics. But hopefully my book um, questions that a bit. That yes, cooperation might you know be better than death and um, destruction, but also um, is cooperation really the end goal here, or should we be adding something else to that?
0: You know, I guess might one call up the example of the Colorado River here in the, you know, in the Southwest, which I think there's just been an executive order issued, again, you know, t- telling the individual states to be behave nicely, to play nicely over dividing the water. Um, yeah. It's again. It's a kind of an, an archetype. Um, what's your next project about?
1: Ah, the next project is going to bring together um, Antarctic exploration and early outer space exploration, and thinking about the role of science um, in creating international cooperation and striving for what I call epistemic completion. So this idea that you can see the globe in its entirety. And, in order to do that, you need to see the globe from all different places.
0: That sounds terribly romantic. <laughs> it's... <laughs> well,
1: it's going to take down the romanticism. I mean, again, I think well, one I mean of this you know about...
0: the, the blue marble kind of notion, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. It's
1: about yeah. deconstructing that and questioning that and seeing what that blue marble concept hides when we see it as this beautiful, mm. integrated romantic whole. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Well, but I look it hides forward. It
1: a lot of things.
0: <laughs> <It does. laughs> Is my
1: argument.
0: Uh, well, I look forward to seeing it, and I want to thank you so much, Joanne, for being my guest on Sustainability Now.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: If you'd like to listen to previous shows, you can find them at ksquid.org/sustainabilitynow and Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Casts, among other podcast sites. So, thanks for listening, and thanks to all the staff and volunteers who make Case Good, your community radio station, and keep it going. And so, until next, every other Sunday, sustainability now.